Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think the Chinese in the South China Sea actually may have completely miscalculated. I was really surprised at the real level of anxiety in Australia about the concerns of having to choose, uh, essentially, between the United States and China. You know, there are a lot of people around the president who have a long history of thinking about regime change in Iran. I imagine the Chinese are actually pretty worried about what's happening in the Middle East. The story of the Cold War is over. The story of a unipolar world with the United States at the helm of it is over. And I think we have to write a new story that the American people can understand and rally behind. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. It has been an interesting week in world affairs this week. We have seen leaks out of the British where the ambassador to the US thinks that President is a bit of a drongo and that his administration is too incompetent to catch a cold in a pandemic. He has been effectively PNG'd by the President and I reckon we could probably expect a new ambassador to the US relatively soon. We have seen Carrie Lam, the leader of Hong Kong, admit that the extradition bill is about as dead as her political career. Interesting to see what the next steps are from Beijing. Also the next steps of the millions of people that have been out on the street every week in Hong Kong. And we've seen a continuation of tensions in the Persian Gulf. The Iranians have said that they are going to breach the agreement, the JCPOA, where they promised not to enrich nuclear material above a certain level. They're going to break out of that. We have seen the French offer to mediate to try and bring tensions down a bit. And all eyes are on the US to see where these tensions are going to go to next. And this is one of the issues that we're going to hit up in this podcast today, along with all of these other tensions that we're experiencing in the Indo-Pacific. And we're going to be chatting to Miss Kelly Magsiman. Kelly is the Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Centre for American Progress. Prior to joining the Centre, Kelly served in various national security positions. She was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defence for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs and performed the duties of Assistant Secretary of Defence. In these positions, she was a lead advisor to the Secretary of Defence for US defence policy and strategy across the Indo-Pacific, including Afghanistan and Pakistan. Prior to her time at the Pentagon, uh, she served on the National Security Council staff for two presidents and four national security advisors. 
and she was a special assistant to the president and senior director for strategic planning from 2012 to 2014. She was responsible for long-term planning and helped craft the 2015 National Security Strategy. She has also served as a senior advisor for Middle East reform during the height of the Arab Spring and was also director for Iran from 2008 to 2011. These are issues that we will be discussing with her today on the National Security Podcast, and let's do that right now. G'day, Kelly. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Great to be here. All right, so let's get rolling. What are the failures, in your opinion, that have led us to be recording a podcast so early in the morning? (laughs) Logistics. Logistics. I I, I don't know how we agreed to this, but here we are and I've got about 11 billion questions to ask. So let's get straight into it. Um, We've had you here in Canberra for a couple of days now and we've been flogging you with speakers, panels, keynote speeches, roundtable discussions and so on. You've heard a lot of Australian opinions. What have you heard that surprised or challenged you the most in the time that you've been here? It's actually been fascinating. I, when I got here, I sort of knew that the backdrop of the U.S.-China tensions was going to be front and center in the conversation here. But I was really surprised at the, the real level of anxiety uh, in Australia about the concerns of having to choose uh, essentially between the United States and China and that some of the choices that will be confronting Australia down the road if this, if this U.S.-China tension grows over time. Um, I knew there was anxiety, but I didn't realize how much anxiety there was. Um, And that tells me that the U.S. strategy uh, has a serious set of flaws in it. Uh, If our closest allies uh, in Australia are having such high levels of anxiety about where the American strategy is going. Yeah, we had an interesting discussion maybe about uh, six months ago with some American visitors and they were shocked as well. But what they were shocked about wasn't that we were worried about choosing, is that we didn't understand that that's actually a nightmare situation for the US as well. One Mm -hmm. of their strongest allies feeling like that they're going to have to make a choice. Now, some of that isn't particularly based on America's actions. It is the fact that there is a rising power that does have very deep economic connections throughout the region. The other thing that gets discussed is that it may not be our choice to make. People say, oh, we don't have to choose, which is all well and good. But sometimes your opponents or other actors have a say in where this goes. Mm. And when we see the US facing towards the Middle East again, we get worried, are we going to be asked to contribute when we're more concerned about what's happening in our region? Are we going to have to pay dues again on a uh, relationship that is starting to get a little bit more uncertain because of different personalities, which is something that we will get to <laughs> later on in the podcast. The, the elephant in the room, <laughs> the so The elephant in the room, yes, the big orange elephant. Uh, <laughs> the so, orange Cheeto. The orange Cheeto, <laughs> nice. Right, so... Just keeping it broad for a minute, we've seen the the release of the Indo-Pacific Strategy Report uh, over the last couple of days. How much of this report and approach is continuity from the Obama era and how much do you see of it as a change? I think there is a lot of continuity, uh, which is the the wonderful quality of the U.S. Defense Department. Uh, It does long-term planning, unlike the rest of the U.S. government. I do think it's a a natural build-on from the rebalance uh, strategy during the Obama administration. And I'm I'm happy to see the Department of Defense continuing to outline and pursue the objectives, I think, that have been shared across different administrations with respect to the Asia-Pacific. So I think that's a good sign. Uh, It tells you that the bureaucracy... uh, 
in the Department of Defense and in Washington is still moving forward, even as there's a lot of uncertainty and volatility currently at the top. So yeah, that's yeah, a good is, sign. Uh, isn't like the highest ranked civilian in the Department of Defense like the tea lady these days or something? <laughs> how, how, does, I, how does that affect decision making? It, it, is, it is very challenging. It worries me, frankly, as a, a long-term defense civilian to see the civilian apparatus within the Department of Defense so emaciated, essentially, and the military so dominant in the context of, of what's going on inside the Pentagon. Um, and, it's, and it doesn't help that we don't have a, a confirmed Secretary of Defense. We haven't had one for over a year. Um, that's very concerning because you still do need, even though there's this bureaucratic momentum on these things, you still need the cabinet-level leadership to really push, you know, for example, the services of the Department of Defense to, to make the right investments uh, in the defense budget to, to advance the national defense strategy. So you still need that top-down leadership. Um, and there's also, on the military side, there's going to be an upcoming transition with Chairman Dunford uh, leaving the Joint Chiefs and uh, General Mark Milley taking over in September. So lots of, lots of transition in DOD. But it's a, it's a good sign, I think, that this this DoD strategy report is out. Mm, and so, looking at reports like this, it's a very well written report, and and it's based on very solid strategic thinking, same as the National Defense Strategy and the National Security Strategy. How much stock can we actually put in these reports, though, when the political leadership seems a little more unorthodox and erratic? Yeah. It's a very good point. Um, you know, I think that it's. It's very hard, even during the Obama administration when we were working on the rebalance, to get the Department of Defense to make the strategic turn uh, towards the Asia-Pacific. And it doesn't take much to distract uh, the department you know, to go back to the Middle East, to go back to the cul-de-sac, of the strategic cul-de-sac that is the Middle East and South Asia that we keep getting stuck in. So uh, it does worry me uh, that the volatility at the top could have a potential strategic impact. But regardless, you know, if if the if the president uh, and his national security team in Washington are you know focused on Iran, it's it's very hard for them to keep their that amount of focus. You know, they're human beings. There's only a, a limited amount of time um, with respect to their days. And so, if we've got a war going on with Iran, for example, God God forbid. It'll, it will be hard for the machinery to, to focus on the China challenge. Yeah, and I'm quoting uh, a chap that I read on Twitter here. His name is Jonathan Odom. And he mentioned this week that somewhere in the PLA headquarters, someone just jotted down this note. Shooting down a US surveillance drone over the East China or South China Sea might be another grey zone tactic. In other words, below the US threshold for war, and we can use this for achieving our area denial objectives. Do you think that China has an interest in the US getting entangled in the Middle East again? How do you think China's seeing what's going on in the Persian Gulf? I imagine the Chinese are actually pretty worried about what's happening in the Middle East. Yeah, probably they have mixed feelings, let's put it this way. Um, you know, of course, they're very heavily dependent on Middle Eastern oil. Oil energy security is of course at the top of their their strategic to-do list. But at the same time, yes, of course, it's it, you know if the U.S. continues to be distracted on Iran or Afghanistan or Syria, uh, that has strategic attendant benefits for for the Chinese. So I suspect that it's a mixed set of feelings uh, inside Beijing right now. Yeah, there was a lot of talk in around about 2010 when we saw uh, China really starting to push into the South China Sea, start their island building program, and so on. That uh, this was 
in two parts. One, that um, US had lost a lot of its global prestige because of the global financial uh, crisis. And secondly, that they had been so bogged down and so war-weary after fighting two wars in Central Asia and uh, the Middle East that there wouldn't be the appetite to confront China uh, and their expansion in the region. You have a bit of an inside view in, into, into how things went, but how do you rate America's response to the growth of China over the last couple of years? And, and where do you think that some of these armchair generals like me um, <laughs> ha- have got it wrong saying, oh, the US didn't respond fast yeah. enough? What, what are some of the areas that we don't understand or, or the, yeah. that we've misread in this situation? Well, I think, you know, the South China Sea, to get back to your gray zone uh, point earlier, you know, it's a very serious challenge uh, to international interests, not just American interests. And, you know, I think it's it's a difficult one because of the, the nature of the fact that China takes steps that are just below the level of uh, a threshold for conflict. And the United States, you know, has a big set of global responsibilities. They have a big set of re- relationship responsibilities with China. And so the South China Sea was a factor in those conversations, um, but maybe not necessarily at the top of the list of, of things for many years. I think the Chinese in, in the South China Sea actually may have completely miscalculated. In my view, uh, what China has done is essentially not that much <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and what I mean by that is the United States and our allies, uh, and the French and the British and others, are going to continue to sail through the South China Sea. And it's put the burden of risk on the Chinese, actually, to take the next step. So. And I think that Beijing is not going to take that step uh, at the moment. You know, they're not going to shoot down a U.S. drone in the South China Sea. Maybe they will, but I don't think they will. Mm. Um, so it's in some ways, it's put the burden on them to, to really push forward. And I also think the region, it, it set the region into a, a tailspin in terms of what they think about Chinese intentions. Part of me thinks that Beijing didn't think that people were going to react that much to it, that they didn't expect the U.S. to have the kind of reaction that we had. And so, you know, where are they now? They have some, you know, very nice reclaimed islands uh, and that, that they're militarizing uh, despite their, their commitments to not do that. Uh, the region is more suspicious of their intentions, not less. Uh, and the United States is defying them on a daily basis. Looking at, at, at a more theoretical or conceptual point of view, has the rules-based order failed in the world because of a failure to confront a, a, a unilateral grab of territory in the South China Sea, the concentration camps in Xinjiang, the situation we're seeing in Syria and the growing number of countries that are nuclear power states and not nuclear proliferation treaty signatories. Mm -hmm. Has the rules-based order failed? Is that something that we should be fighting for or should we be looking past this? Yeah. I mean, I think that all the examples you laid out, um, whether it's the terrible crisis in Syria that is still ongoing that people have forgotten about, Um, whether it's the South China Sea or uh, Ukraine uh, or the Russians shooting down civilian airliners. Uh, There's a number of of actors in the international system that are testing uh, the rules-based order. And the rules-based order hasn't been uh, as effective in in addressing those challenges. But I think, you know, when we're talking about preserving the rules-based order, um, I think we need to be, to your point, looking forward um, as to what is the what is the purpose of that order? Uh, what are we actually trying to to build together? And is the rules based order of the last century that going to be the same one as the next century? And I I happen to think we need to adjust and modify our approach. Um, and I think we should do that uh, with countries like Australia and our friends uh, in the Asia Pacific uh, and in Europe to try to shape a rules-based order that's more effective and that is able to actually solve global challenges, whether it's climate 
climate change or artificial intelligence or the rules of cyber warfare, et cetera. These are all big questions that loom over this century um, that aren't the traditional security questions of the last century. So, how, how do you sell the idea of a rules-based order, though, when it has such a history of being transgressed by the major powers, whether yeah. you're talking about 2003 or whether you're talking about all the transgressions during the Cold War as well? How do you sell something like that? Well, I mean, I think the rules-based order has delivered a lot of uh, prosperity and security to to millions and millions of people, including in China uh, and around the world. So as much as there are failures of it, there are also great successes that I think are worth remembering as we're talking about it. Um, but it's funny because in the United States, for example, when you talk to the average American about a liberal international rules-based order, their first reaction is, what is that? What did, I don't like this idea of a liberal international order of any sort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are they thinking like liberals and conservatives? Well, yeah, yeah they, think it's a, they think political at first and they think the black helicopters yeah. and then there's a mass international conspiracy. I mean, it sort of plays into the classic kind of American suspicion yeah. of – There's a bit of a branding problem. Yeah, there, there's a bit there? of a branding problem. Yeah. So I do think we have to come up with a different way of talking about it, at least for the American public, yeah. um, that, that doesn't really necessarily uh, focus on these issues on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's one real big challenge for – for American politicians, especially as we head into 2020, to really you know, lay out what our North Star is on foreign policy. Like, what are we actually trying to do now? Because the story of the Cold War is over. The story of a unipolar world with the United States at the helm of it is over. And I think we have to write a new story that the American people can understand and rally behind. Because if we can't, if we can't define what that story is, it's very hard for our allies and our friends around the world to follow us uh, when, we, when we try to lead. Yeah, that, that's another hard sell, though, selling to whether it's farmers out in mm-hmm. mid-America or some of the, the factory workers up north and so on that, well, no, you're going to have to retrain and reskill because we live in a global marketplace and we have to support a, a liberal trading regime. How do you sell long-term foreign policy to an electorate that has a short-term view of keeping their jobs and getting their children to school and so on. How, how do you sell something like that? <laughs> well, if I had the answer to that question, I would probably be, be, I'd be president. running for president yeah, of the United right, States. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, well, I would never do that. <laughs> so no worries there. But it's you know it's a real it's a real uh, challenge, and I think I think we we owe it to whether it's the Australian public or the American public to try to make that connection to their daily lives. And I think you can make it. in some cases it's going to be abstract, right? But in some cases, for example, on climate change, there is an actual day-to-day impact on people's lives, especially farmers in the United States. Um, if you talk to folks in uh, Michigan, for example, clean water is a really big issue. And so <laughs> climate and environmental policy has a regular impact on their lives. So figuring out ways to say, okay, if the United States is leading on climate change, it's going to make your children's lives better, and it's going to address the concerns around rising sea levels, et cetera, rising you know, water levels, clean air, clean water. I think those kinds of articulations are are useful. And I think people have to feel, you know, on the one hand, foreign policy, you're always going to have a bit of an elitist aspect to it just because of the nature of it. And people will have to be sort of pointed in the right direction. But I do think we owe it to people to be able to explain it. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that you're definitely facing in the US that we're really starting to face here as well, to to even have conversations like that, you've got to break down some of this massive divide that we're experiencing in societies that is being capitalized on by um, not so ethical political players where... uh, 
we see the opposite side of the ideological discussion in our own countries as the enemy. Mm-hmm. And and we can't even have a civil discussion on values, on the future of the country with our own country people because everything becomes so tense and so confrontational. Where do you see this kind of dynamic moving in the US, especially as we're moving towards an election period, which is really going to have fireworks? <laughs> yes. Uh, the first debate, actually, uh, first Democratic debate is going to be this week. So I'll be interested to see how all of the Democratic candidate, candidates uh, engage with the each other. Listen, I think in the United States, just like here in Australia, um, politics has become a team sport. Uh, and you sort of basically- a contact sport. And a, con- and a blood sport. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people sort of identify with their team. There's, you know, an instinct to support everything your team does and hate everything the other team does. And I think it's deeply corrosive. I think it's, it's fed by the media in both countries. Um, I think we have a really big problem in the United States with uh, Fox News, for example, um, not being an unbiased source. Um, you know, people are, are are splitting themselves into their little silos um, on the Twitter. You know, if you if you're on Twitter, you follow tend to follow your own. You know, the people you agree with. So you're in that your own silo of excellence, as I like to say it. <laughs> silo of excellence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you don't you don't get to interact and see the viewpoints of others. Um, so we're we're becoming uh, a more digital society, a less engaged, you know, humanly engaged society. We're pulling back into these little silos. And I think that's a real challenge, and especially on foreign policy where, you know, in in the United States, there used to be a tradition of politics stop at the water's edge, and that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, And I think even foreign policy is becoming highly political. So two trends that we're talking about in this conversation is rules-based order and foreign policy, but also how it affects uh, the electorate and voting patterns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And... We're in the middle of a trade war at the moment that we're also seeing uh, bans on, well, essentially Huawei and Chinese technology into America's uh, critical national infrastructure. Is that what we're seeing on the surface? Is it an actual trade war? Is it an actual national security concern? Or does it go deeper into we're looking at a competition for the global economy and for leadership in technology? It's all of the above. Um, I think the trade war, putting that aside the sort of um, bilateral trade war dimensions. I do think that you know, with respect to the future of high technology, there is a there is a competition uh, between the United States and China, uh, and frankly, the rest of the world and China. I think um, in terms of who's going to dominate the global economy and in, in this century, and and that's going to be driven by high tech. So there's a there's an economic competition dimension of this. I think there's a national security dimension of this with respect to Huawei, which I think is real. Uh, and I know that Australia has taken steps, and of course, the United States has taken very aggressive steps. Australia actually took the first steps yeah. in the world. And this is what a lot of people forget. Everyone everyone says, oh, it's just America trying to screw China over and so on. Well, no, Australia doesn't really 
really have a horse in this race. Yet we made the first decision to ban Huawei from our national critical infrastructure based on advice from the national security community. It was not an economic decision. It was a pure security decision. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people seem to forget that in the global debate. Yeah, no, and it's very important. And, and Australia's leadership is is essential on that. And, you know, Europe is, is going through the same process right now. They're also taking a look uh, at what the potential security dimensions of the Huawei uh, 5G would be. Um, so I think there's an active debate uh, on that. I think there's questions around whether or not if you decouple at the high tech level, uh, whether that's going to have broader effects uh, in, to the global economy that could be unhealthy for not just the United States and China, but also our allies and partners around the world. So it's a real live debate. I think it's a very hard one. Uh, I don't think there is a perfect answer uh, to these issues. Um, I do think, though, that China does pose a serious high-tech challenge, both on the national security dimensions and the economic. And that's what you're seeing play out in uh, in the U.S. strategy at this stage. We're, we're seeing the balkanization of the internet where, where countries are starting to get sovereign information spaces. Are we going to see that um, push through into the technology space in terms of R&D manufacturing? Are we going to see the, the balkanization of the technology industry as well because people are so mm-hmm. concerned about either uh, allowing other countries to take their, their IP or to take their technology or not let their technology into their own national infrastructure? Are we going to see the economy actually split up and become uh, sovereignized as well? Yeah, uh, potentially. I mean, I think that's something that is uh, concerning, of course, um, and it's not something that's probably not desirable. Um, but I do think, uh, and I spoke about this yesterday during the the, uh, the Crawford Forum. You know, I think that there is something to be said uh, about uh, democracies uh, like Australia, the United States, Japan, India, and others figuring out the digital trade issues together and figuring out what kind of open uh, internet and high-tech uh, industry, global industry, we want to have that you know advances our interests as well. Because uh, the Chinese are doing that themselves. They do have their own strategic plans uh, around these areas. And I think it's important for us to collectively uh, be working together to, to decide what we want to see in terms of the digital arena. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, the Trump administration or maybe a future administration uh, will, instead of doing things bilaterally on this front, will actually work very closely with our allies first, because I think collective action on these issues is going to be essential. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to get in touch with Oxford Dictionary, and I'm going to get them to put my new word of sovereignizing. Sovereignizing. <laughs> sovereignizing. <laughs> verbing hey, the noun works. or the adjective. Yeah, I, I think that goes well. So you're just talking about collective action. We, we see the, the, the tension and, and the competition between China and the US now. These are two great powers. We've seen uh, the catastrophe that can happen in the world when two great powers clash. Even if it's the Cold War, there's still a lot of violence and disruption around the world on the periphery. Are there areas that we can be working on with China, areas of cooperation that could work towards avoiding that outcome? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this is one area where there is a deficit uh, in American thinking about trying to find the ways to leverage China's growing capabilities to the to, to the global public good. So for example on Belt and Road initiative, I, I you know there's a lot of talk about how the Belt and Road initiative is a massive threat to the international order and system and US economic and security interests. Um, I actually think that there are parts of the Belt and Road initiative that are very good thing and can be a very good thing. There's a lot of countries that are very happy to have their infrastructure uh, invested in. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that those of course those 
those deals be transparent uh, and and good standards so you don't have debt traps uh, for many of these developing countries. But I do think that there's a way to engage the Chinese on this particular issue um, and find ways. You know, if China is willing to build, you know, a, a massive railway, you know, in, in parts of Africa that the United States and, and its allies and partners don't have the resources or interest in doing so, that's great. You know, that could be a wonderful thing. Um, and I think the U.S., and our allies, we need to be more strategic about places where we think we really need to compete on Belt and Road versus just trying to compete at the overall overarching level. Because I think that would be a huge strategic error. I think it would be on the level of the AIIB <laughs> disaster that the United States had a few years ago. So I think that you know there's places where working with China will be essential, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on humanitarian assistance to disaster relief, whether it's on peacekeeping operations. There's a lot of areas of public good that we should be engaged. So you mentioned the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the US failure in policy in encouraging their partners and allies not to get involved in it. Has a lesson been learned in Washington from that experience? I think so. I, I do think so. I think I think we internalized <laughs> that pretty pretty well, and I do think that you know there's there's it's a it's a cautionary tale for the Trump administration as it pursues this competition with China. Um, I'm hoping that they heed it and that the importance of not putting our, our partners and our allies in a position of choo- choosing between the United States and America on things that aren't necessary for them to choose on. And do you think there's any regret that uh, they pulled out of the TPP as well? Of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? I don't think there's any regret at the in the Trump administration. That's a pity. I know. <laughs> I think many of us who were advocates, I was a strong advocate uh, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership when I was in the Obama administration. I think it would have been a very important economic set of plays for the United States and our allies. And it was a, a complete own goal and a disaster um, at, at the very end. But that said... I do think that there are ways forward on multilateral trade, especially in the digital arena, that we should be working with our, our Asian partners on. Yeah. All right. So we, we can't have a conversation with you without talking about Iran and the Persian Gulf and going down that rabbit hole. What the hell is 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 this? I mean, like, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that there is it's just like the trade war and so on that there is a deeper strategy that I'm just not smart no. enough to see here, or has President Trump and his team pulled out of the the JCPOA? I'm not going to spell out that acronym. The nuclear agreement with Iran to then create their own crisis that they can't back out of. Yeah. It's uh, it's Trump playing both the arsonist and the firefighter role. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be very good and at the firefighting he's role. Not very good. <laughs> yeah, he's not even really good at being an arsonist. You know, I as a, I was a former Iran director in the National yes. Security Council for both George W. Bush and and President Obama, and so this is a very, this is a painful experience for me to watch uh, in firsthand. I, you know, the JCPOA, the Iran Nuclear Agreement, was working. It was a, an agreement that took years to get into place. We we worked closely with our allies, you know, internationally to put a lot of economic pressure on Iran to get Iran to the table. The whole purpose of sanctions starting in 2010 was to to actually pressure them on to get to the diplomacy table, and it was effective and it worked. And we got to we got a pretty good agreement that you know cut off all the dimensions of Iran being able to get a nuclear weapon. And then Trump, who has never read the deal, I'm convinced of it, has no idea what the content of that deal was. But because it was Barack Obama's deal, he ripped it up um, and set the United States on a on a path of confrontation with the Iranians. What's been surprising to me as an Iran analyst 
is that the Iranians um, have stayed in the deal this long, mm. <laughs> frankly. Mm. Um, Do you think that they were hoping that the Americans were, were going to walk back or, sorry, the Trump administration was going to uh, walk back its uh, decision to, to pull out of the agreement? I mean, like it's, it kind of seems like the Trump administration has pulled out of the agreement but expects the Iranians to still... <laughs> <laughs> they're they are criticizing the Iranians for breaking the agreement now. In a few days, I think July 7th is the deadline, the Iranians will start to make decisions around enrichment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Trump administration is saying, how dare they make these decisions about returning to enrichment? I, I thought he's supposed to understand, like, how a deal works. There's two sides to a yeah. deal, right? No, it's uh, – you can't make it up. Um, you know, there are a lot of people around the president who have a long history of thinking about regime change in Iran. Okay. So we're, we're essentially talking about the National Security Advisor, We're talking about John, John Bolton. Bolton. We're talking about Secretary Pompeo. Pompeo yeah. You know, even others with or around the administration. There's a cottage industry in Washington around yeah. regime change. And, you know, they they believe that if you just put enough economic pressure on Iran that, you know, somehow the regime will collapse or capitulate or come to the table and say, yes, of course, we're going to stop supporting Hezbollah, Hamas and others. And we're going yeah. to unilaterally disarm uh, for the United States. And anyone who knows the Iran political leadership and, and understands the Iranians knows that that will never happen. Um, the Iranians are deeply proud people. They have a, a strong sense of self. And they're very nationalistic. Um, and that's not just hardliners. <laughs> Those are even the reformers inside Iran. So, they, you know, Trump has basically and his team around him have left themselves with very few options other than sort of status quo pressure to no end and no purpose or potentially conflict. So they've walked themselves into a strategic corner on Iran that they didn't have to do. They could have kept the agreement in place. They could have built on the agreement. They could have addressed Iran's bad regional behavior, which it's, it does behave badly in the region, as we have seen in recent weeks, on top of the nuclear deal. But now they're dealing with both the nuclear challenge and the regional security challenge all at one time. It's a disaster. So what's Iran's play on this, though? In, in the days around when this pod is recorded, it's probably going to be released in about two weeks, so I'm sure that the whole landscape will have shifted oh, by yeah. then. But but in the last couple of days, Iran has been making insulting statements that seem specifically aimed at puncturing President Trump's catastrophically fragile ego. Uh, surely they've noted what has been happening in North Korea that it seems like the president is more interested in sending love letters and going on exotic getaways in Southeast Asia with his uh, negotiating partner rather than actually affecting outcomes on the ground. The intelligence community is saying that the nuclear arsenal is continuing to be developed whilst this, well, if we could even call it a negotiating process, is underway. Yet it's being framed as a success in, in Washington. Surely the Iranians are seeing this and that they may have played along and pandered to the ego like everyone else who wants something from the president is, but instead they're, they're flipping it and they're actually provoking him in a way that is most sure to get an aggressive response out of him. What, what do you think the play is in Tehran? Yeah. No, it's it's interesting to watch right now. You know, I think Donald Trump would love to get to some sort of Hanoi-like process uh, with the Iranians where he could just pretend like he's this great statesman and he's getting a better deal. Um, and have, I think he'd be perfectly content with that superficial uh, made-for-TV <laughs> diplomatic which, process with the Iranians. Which seems to count on the ignorance of the American electorate. Correct. Not saying that it, it is does. ignorant, but that's exactly what it he's does. doing. It does. Um, because, you know, Americans aren't paying close attention to these issues. They're not, you know, deep on, you know, all of the ins and outs of the nuclear programs of either of these countries. And no no electorate is any or no, no, no population yeah, it's not is just an American 
electorate. Yeah, 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 I imagine here too. So, you know, and Trump's really smart. He understands that, you know, the images of him meeting with Kim Jong-un are playing on the local news, uh, which is what most Americans watch at night. And they're thinking, oh, great. The situation has been solved. The president, look at him. He's leading on the international stage. So he's kind of figured that out in his mind. The Iranians, however, to my earlier point, um, are a different kettle of fish <laughs> from the North Koreans. Um, they have different politics. They, have, they actually have real politics. Kim Jong-un does not have the same level of politics that they do. Um, so it's much harder for the Iranians, I think, to give him that kind of, of major diplomatic win. Now, if they were smart, if they were smart, they would play footsie with the Trump administration and try to engage in some sort of back-channel diplomatic process, if anything, just to, to stave off additional sanctions, to give themselves the breathing room to see if a new president's elected. That would be the smart play if you were the Iranians. But they are they are the they are the victims of their own uh, internal dynamics as well. Um, so they're they're playing to their own crowd as well. Oh yeah, you this think? is this is this is this is about their own internal dynamics. You know, I think that they also don't think that any deal that they make with the Trump administration would necessarily stick in the first place, <laughs> um, which is not an irrational viewpoint. Um, so they're much more skeptical and they're a different audience than, than Kim Jong-un in North Korea. But I think Trump thinks he could probably uh, get there. So we'll see. There's been uh, rumors of back-channel attempts by the administration through Oman to try to get a, a dialogue going. Um, but we'll see where that where that plays out. Yeah, well, I mean, like the Iranians have been quite public. They've, it seems like the the leadership in Iran has committed publicly committed to not having negotiations exactly. with Trump, and it's pretty hard to walk back that position as well without yeah. without spending political capital domestically. Um, speaking about the domestic machinations inside of Iran, and I know that you're quite steeped in this area. Do you have a take on Qasem Soleimani, the the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Command? Is he building himself an empire inside Iran? Has he got a shot at the title in Tehran? Yeah, I would say that the IRGC in general, um, for a number of years, I mean, this is going back probably a decade, um, have been building themselves uh, into the Iranian economy um, and, you know, creating a power structure internally that is competitive with, frankly, the mullah's power structure. Um does that mean he's going to try to, you know, create a military regime in Iran uh, and take over Iran? I, I don't think so. Um, but if, for example, uh, there was some sort of uh, political instability at the top uh, with the supreme leader, I would not be surprised to see uh, the IRGC emerge as the most potent political force in Iran. Um, they have... They have integrated themselves quite well uh, into the political and, and economic structure in, in Iran. One of the ways that they've uh, integrated themselves into the economics is that they're one of the, the leading smugglers that get around the sanctions. Are putting more sanctions on Iran actually building up the, the IRGC and providing them uh, an, a lever to power? I think that could have been made the case uh, a few years ago. I think it's less so now. I think I think the, I think Iran is hurting economically from the sanctions, and I think that is part in part why we're seeing them act out uh, in the Gulf. Do, do the Iranian people blame the U.S. for that pain they're experiencing, or do they blame their own leadership? That's a very good question. I think it's very hard uh, for us to really know from the outside. I think many of them blame their leadership, um, but I think that, of course, of course, the United States uh, is getting a portion of the blame as well. And you know, listen, they're not—they're on the internet. Iranians are savvy; they know what's going on, um, and they know what the Trump administration is doing. And I don't think it's popular. 
All right, so we're going to round the podcast off with something a lot more positive than the the grim news from the outside world. I was surfing through all of the you know, traditional abuse and ignorance that we find on Twitter last night, <laughs> and I witnessed an explosion of positivity and excitement, much of it led by your own good self, proclaiming the launch of the Leadership Council of Women in National Security. You might have noticed uh, a uh, Women in National Security banner behind you as you spoke at the National Security College alumni event last night. We also have a big focus here on promoting women's careers and roles in national security. So by default, we're also pretty excited about your launch. Tell us about the LC wins, maybe starting with how the cool kids are saying that acronym. LC <laughs> <laughs> wins. You've got it LC right. Wins, <laughs> you've got it right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so this is a brand new organization uh, that just launched uh, today or yesterday. It's hard to tell in the time zones in, in, uh, in the United States. You know, it's made up of a number of women and men uh, in national security who are committed to gender parity uh, in leadership roles in national security going forward. And our first big act of this organization was to get uh, 15 of the presidential campaigns to sign a pledge that if they became president, they would they would seek gender parity in national security positions throughout government, which is is a huge huge win uh, and unprecedented, uh, frankly, um, in Washington. So we're really proud of, of that achievement. It's the first one of many, I think, to come. Um, the organization is going to be very active. We've got great leadership in folks like Rosa Brooks and Heather Holbert and and uh, Mika Young and many others around Washington um, to really to really push. You know, whether it's think tanks or universities or Congress or the administration to to really focus on gender parity and national security. So we're very excited about it. Uh, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> and and we're really excited about what we're going to see from it. And I think it's great that ANU is doing the same thing here uh, at the National Security College. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, um, we, we are really happy to see Maybe we'll this. make you our first international I was, chapter. I was about to say, <laughs> I reckon there may be an email coming your there way to talk about email. possible synergies here. <laughs> That sounds good. I think I think going global would be in the first week would be pretty cool. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Right, we we're going to get onto that. But right now, I just want to say thanks very much for coming in and talking to us on the National Security Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Big thanks to Kelly Magsman for coming on to the National Security Podcast and talking to us today about some of these issues that the US is facing and that the world is facing as well in terms of Indo-Pacific tensions, relations between the US and China and the tensions in the Middle East. If you have any opinions on these things, feel free to hit us up at Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSec Pod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Always keen to hear what you have to say about these issues and also hear any ideas for pods in the future. Be sure to drop us a rating, drop us a review on whatever platform you pod with. Happy to receive all critiques and criticisms. They really help us put these pods together and also reach a wider audience. So thanks very much for listening today and we'll catch you on the next National Security Podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.